Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Multidisciplinary artist Prune Nuri works in sculpture, performance, and video, and was living her life when in 2016 her world as she knew it turned upside down. It was then, at 31, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, a journey she shares in the first-person film Serendipity. By doing so, Prune discovered new meaning in her impressive body of work and its serendipitous relationship to her own survival and mortality. Born in France, based in Brooklyn, Prune has spent most of her artistic career creating work that focuses on women's bodies and female fertility. Holy Daughters was the first part of a triptych spanning several years in Asia regarding gender imbalance and the misuse of new scientific techniques for the purpose of gender selection. The sculptures are hybrids between cows, sacred animals, and fertility symbols and girls. They're meant to challenge the traditional preference in India of boys over girls. In 2014, Prune collaborated with craftspeople in China to sculpt in clay a life-size army of 108 schoolgirls. Terracotta Daughters is a tribute to Chinese girls who were never born due to the strong cultural preference for sons. This army is buried in a secret location witnessed only by a small group, and excavation is scheduled for 2030. And then in 2018, two years after her breast cancer diagnosis, Prune created her most intimate work. The Amazon is a two-ton, 13-foot-tall cement female warrior, partly covered with 6,000 red incense sticks, a reference to acupuncture needles, part of the treatment she received. In New York, it was a monument and testament to cancer patients and survivors, including its creator. It made its public debut in 2018 in a plaza outside Manhattan Standard Hotel. Look, there's a lot of ground to cover. So let's meet and get to know Prune Nuri. Thank you. Bonjour. Hi, <laughs> Thank you for coming today. Beautiful accent to tell my name in French. You know what? Back in the day, I was going to major in French in college. Oh, and I go. had a wonderful French teacher, and my French name was Hélène. Oh, let's do the whole interview <laughs> in French, then. I don't think so. <laughs> so let's go backward, which I like to do with my very creative guests. Where did art figure in your life growing up? Um, sometimes I like to say that my first relationship to art was, you know, I was born with Dumbo ears. <laughs> so it was my first relationship to genetics uh-huh. and to sculpture in a way because uh, I had those ears from my great-grandfather, my grandmother had them, my uncle, so I could better understand genetics and thanks to that. And sculpture because um, when I was 10, I decided to paste them and to sculpt myself. Did you have any encouragement at home or this was just something that you cultivated on your own? Uh, I know that the last decision was mine, which is the most important. I remember being alone with the doctor um, because he asked, you know, to be alone with me just to make sure that it was my decision. And I remember saying, uh, yes, I'm not doing it for me now. I'm doing it for the woman I will be one mm. day. Mm. And I think the woman today wouldn't mind to have Dumbo ears, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But back then it was it really resonated with you. I have to do something. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I did it and uh, and I would say that was my first relationship to sculpture. The other one was when I was 10 or so, about 10, uh, I organized my first show. 
It was in Normandy. I wasn't the artist. I was the curator. Okay. And <laughs> every, every weekend I was going in Normandy as a kid. Uh, we had that luck since four generations to go uh, along that beach. Right. And there were a shipwreck, beautiful shipwreck that became like the, the aim of all the walks on the beach. But along the years, the more I was growing, the more the boat was being destroyed. Uh, by the environment? Uh -huh. By the sea, by, mm -hmm. you know, all the, I don't know how you call that, the marais, when there is the moon, you know, that makes the, 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 the water goes up and down. And so there were all these waves and erosion, exactly. beach erosion. Mm -hmm. So one day I decided to invite all the friends uh, around there and we had champagne, we did an invitation. Not a 10, darling, did you? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Even in France, 10 is young to be drinking champagne. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and and we, we even made an invitation that I draw and we called the show Ephemere, which means effect of the, the sea, sea, but mm -hmm. also ephemeral. And people came and were like looking around and asking, but where is the artist? Where is the artist? And in fact, the artist was the sea. Yeah. And all the artworks were pieces of the dismembered shipwreck wow. that became like Richard Serra, incredible, you know, art uh -huh, pieces. Uh -huh. We kept one. We kept one that we still have. A beautiful, large one. It really looks like a rich Sarah. <laughs> Did the town officials encourage that? Oh, no. No, 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 no. That was something we did with friends, and that's it. And so, take us on your journey. So, I knew I wanted to be an artist, but I had no idea what it meant. Right. So Were your parents involved in the arts? No, they weren't. They weren't. They were open to it. Like they mm -hmm. never. Made, they exposed you. They exposed me. Mm -hmm. they, they brought me to museums. Uh, we traveled in Asia. Uh, they love traveling, but you know backpacks and. Yep. But I remember being young and seeing uh, for the first time a, a large uh, sculpture of a Buddha in Sri Lanka. And that was, uh, you know, Spoke to you. something that really stick to my mind, uh, but unconsciously, because uh, years after, which was 2017, I created my own giant Buddha mm -hmm. in a museum in Paris. Mm -hmm. And when the Buddha was installed, that's when I remember that, of course, I had seen it when I was a kid, you know. So you have things like that that inspires you along the way, but you don't remember them. Right. They just nourish you. Yes, yes. So when it was time for you to go to school, Ecole and Lycée, where did you go? I went to a wood sculpture school, a craftsman school. Okay. It was a decision that I made because it was a short uh, degree. It was only three years where all the artist schools were about five years. And I wanted, you know, to start quickly. You were antsy, huh? By myself. Mm -hmm. uh, because I thought that I would have less pressure on me if I was, you know, starting early as an artist. Mm -hmm. And was this, Where was the school located? It was located in Paris, in a very, like, uh, old area of Paris where you have craftsmen from, you know, centuries. And it's a very well-known one, but for crafts. And I knew I wanted to be an artist. I was the only one in my class, in a way, who wanted to do that, but choose that school. But it was an idea to get the techniques, and then the concept was in me. So mm -hmm. that I could, you know, uh, you, learn about it after. to express yourself, correct? I wanted to really get the savoir-faire, like the, the, that, those bases mm -hmm. that, where mm -hmm. I would be able to, to, to sculpt and, and be able to... Uh, bring shape to my ideas. It's like having the foundation, yeah. in a way. So 
I did that school, which uh, was, you know, with that material, very specific. Wood is such a specific material, very, a lot of constraints, a mm-hmm. lot of tools. Your tools have to be very sharp. The wood is, you have to pick it very well. Uh, then you have to, to glue it between, because it has to be in pieces. You cannot uh, use the heart of the trunk, so it has to be cutted. Wow. Um, it's a lot of constraints. Uh, so when I finished the school, I stopped doing wood. I, I was, you know, tired of the constraints <laughs> and I wanted to go to clay and simple things and try new materials. And I, I went to, let's say, futuristic materials. It's, this is what I had in mind at the time. So silicones, resins. Then I realized that resins was terrible for, the, for, the, for health. So I stopped working with that. I continued with silicone, which was a very interesting and strange material because very organic, looking like the skin. So my first sculptures were, were made of that and of bronze mm-hmm. and of glass eyes. I was fascinating since very young by the, the idea of, you know, bringing a soul to the sculpture. And ah, of course, the, the eyes, eyes yeah. helps to do that. But when you finished wood sculpting school. And then you said, I'm now going to work on my own. I need you to explain that to me, not being an artist myself. How did you set up a studio? Where did your money come from? I want sort of an overview of that. You obviously felt very strongly about your ability, and that's a great thing. You know, whether anybody encouraged you or not, I use this term so often with my guests, the strong sense of self. And apparently in your case, you had to do this. Yeah, it, it was like there were no questions, but of course there were many doubts. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's that strange feeling. So many doubts, uh, and for that, you know, I, I really believe in the fact that action brings action. So if you start, and and things will come. Mm-hmm. For that, uh, I I didn't wait to finish school to start selling my artwork. Oh, okay. I organized the show before that. Uh, but again, you know, it was like that, the, the first circle, second circle, right, and then you, right. uh-huh. you bring the circle uh, bigger. But um, w- just getting out of school, I organized, uh, I would say, my first professional show. And this one was, I was very lucky because I, I, I don't know why, it was super important for me to make a, a beautiful invitation. Uh, so I used beautiful paper, you know, I choose very carefully my, my, my font and my, the picture on it. And I was kind of true because, in fact, from that first circle and second circle, people started to keep that invitation. And what I call fridge art, I was, I was lucky <laughs> enough that someone put it on, on, on her fridge and a big collector, a friend with that person, saw it on the fridge and was like, I want to go there. What is it? That collector, so, there was serendipity, huh? Total serendipity. That collector came that night at the opening and she took over me. Like she talked to me for two hours. I couldn't talk to anyone else. <laughs> and the, she, she said at the end, it's not enough. I want to see you again. She came back a few days after at my home slash studio. You know, mm-hmm. I was working in my living room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we talked for four hours and she, she said, how can I help you? And in fact, that was the first time a collector bought a sculpture, two sculptures of mine, that the money could go back into being invested into materials and tools and starting a studio. That's the first story. The second story is that when I started another serendipity, um, one day I received on my account $20,000. What? I mean, euro. 
I'm like, what's going on? This is not mine. Somebody made a deposit? I don't know. I go to the bank and, this you know. This is a mistake, right? And, and I'm <laughs> saying it's a mistake. I'm so sorry. What's going on? Like, And the woman, you know, at the, at the desk is like, oh, don't worry. You know, if it's a, a mistake, um, it will be called back. So wait and you'll see. But, you know, I had been to the bank. I told it. And so um, I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited after two years. Uh, one year and a half, I transferred it into another account, and that was it, you know. And I started to use it. I bought material, tools, Seed rented money. my first studio. Uh -huh. And I, I like to call it the, the prize of that bank, you know, <laughs> it's like, because it's a, it's a famous bank uh, that, that is making prize. So where did the money come from? I have no idea. I think it was a mistake, you know, and I went to the bank and said it was a mistake. But that's it. So that became... Your financial foundation. It was my then. price. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> that plus the God. first sculptures that I sold. Uh, yeah, that was pure serendipity. So I, I was lucky. I was lucky when I started. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's got to be another word than serendipity. I mean, aside from like stepping in it, that expression, <laughs> but also another, there's a great Yiddish word. It's called beshert, and it means meant to be. And whether this was a mistake, a conscious act, who gives a damn? It was meant to be. Mm. And that was obviously a great kick in your butt to get going, right? Definitely. What year and how old were you? I was, when I got out of school, I was 21. So now you're kind of making your mark. And then you you moved from wood and you moved into all these other materials. And what did you want to express? There were two things. Technically, I was super interested in molds and it was a very difficult technique to get. So I decided to go to the best. And I was lucky to, to meet uh, a Brazilian person who was working in France selling very high-level American materials, which you couldn't find anywhere else in France. I went to that man and he told me, okay, if you rent a studio, buy my studio and you uh, buy the material, I will teach you. Oh, and so he taught me for, for he taught me for free, and he was um, he was a master in molding. So that was you know the the first step where I wanted to go. Uh, the second step it was you know I, I what I wanted to say. I was kind of fascinated by the the science because I, I was so bad in science at school. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I was obsessed you know with all the 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 biology, the philosophy of science, the origins. Uh, who are we? Where do we come from? You know, that very basic questions that every artist in a way or another try to answer in their own way. Mm -hmm. So I started my first project, which was uh, called the Domestic Babies, the Bébé Domestic. Very strange hybrids uh, between the pets and the human. And these sculptures were inspired by something that was happening at the time. It was a um, scientist from King's College in London was working on stem cells. But because it was forbidden to use human embryos, then he decided to create hybrid embryos from the cow and the human. So he was taking off the nuclear of cow mm -hmm. embryos, mm -hmm. cow eggs, mm -hmm. and he was instead putting human cells in it. Fascinated by that, I contacted the scientist. I managed to, to, to meet him. I went uh, twice in London to interview him. And, you know, I, I started to show him my, my, my sculptures. And I was, can we do them, really? <laughs> and 
I was amazed to see that at first you were no, 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 no. What are you talking about? It's right. Because they deal in such yeah. facts. Yeah. Because he was thinking as a as an ethical scientist. Of course. He was thinking, uh, you know, me, uh, when I'm doing the, those hybrids, after 14 days, we, we, we stopped the evolution. Right. And, and there is no way, like, we can imagine continuing it. So let's not imagine. But after, you know, two interviews, at the end, he was like, uh, you know, if yours, we were doing yours, so they wouldn't look exactly like your sculpture. They would look more like this and this and this. And he started to imagine. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, my first relation to, you know, how art and science can mix and the power of serendipity, finally, which serendipity for me, that word that mix art and science because it's the same process that for an artist to find something, to, to follow your intuition right. and, and, and get the chance on the way and, and hold it. And a scientist is the same. You have so many scientific uh, discoveries that have been made by serendipity, like right. kinin, like incredible medicines. Mm-hmm. So it is a world that works for art and for science. So... Just give me context in terms of what year was this? That was 2006 and 2007. So you're on this road of expressing your creativity and also, at the risk of sounding mundane, making a living? Yeah, yeah, little by little, by Mm. selling to collectors, yes. And getting your name out there. Yeah, Uh very slowly. (laughs) Very slowly. So then what was happening to you in the time subsequent to that? So... That uh, meeting that scientist was my first encounter with the world of embryos and the origin of life, really. And I got quite fascinated by the fact that we can do today babies in vitro. Right. And I decided to, you know, organize um, an artwork around that, which would be a performance. Uh, I called it the Procreative Dinner. And it's a, a performance between art, science, and gastronomy. Mm-hmm. I invited the star chef. The first one was in Paris, the second one in Geneva, and a scientist to create with me uh, a dinner where I would invite people from the art world and people from the science world to follow every steps of the assisted procreation from the sperm bar and the ovum bar where you do your own cocktail, IVF, <laughs> and you drink it. Uh, to the end when the baby is delivered. The thing is that along all the steps of the dinner and of the courses, you had more and more selection. So it was really a you know, way to question um, designer babies, ah, okay. eugenism, mm-hmm. the new techniques today to, to, to choose and select a human being. How was that received? The most interesting uh, thing to me was that some people were disgusted, even if it was a star chef. Everything was vegetarian. It was delicious. But the projection on it made you feel disgust. And also... Was that your goal? Yes. I, I you know, I like that experimental part, mm-hmm, let's say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but also the interesting thing is like how many people decided to go with the boy or the girl, how many people decided to go with the normal baby, how many people decided to go with the strange ones. So that was a kind of, you know, way also to to show uh, that we all wanted normality, but what does mean normality? Yeah. And the fact also of working 
along the dinner with scientists, having debates and all of that was very interesting, very nourishing for everyone in every sense of the term. That procreative dinner was my first, you know, uh, yeah, let's say uh, it wasn't a sculpture. It was like a, a kind performance. of a performance. But yeah. uh, to me, it was like like a continuation of, of, of the same thing, sure. even if it was very different. I remember beginning and having people that would say, oh, you know, your, your first babies, the strange ones with, with the silicone. That's what you should stick to. Continue doing that for years and years and, and people will remember you this is prunery this is prunery style and I was like yeah great but I will get bored yeah so, hello yeah so no way and so I, it's strange because in fact I had that advice on one hand and on the other hand I did exactly the contrary like I went to a, a performance with no sculptures uh, totally conceptual so yeah so what was next after that, oh, it was the Holy Daughters, so the project in uh, in India, mm -hmm. because again, mm -hmm. you know, from the question of, of human selection uh, and the embryo. That was almost a natural progression. Exactly. Uh -huh. I, I realized that we were, the selection that was happening today, uh, that wasn't futuristic, that was really even something existing since the 80s, that was the gender selection. Mm -hmm. And that was happening in Asia. Uh, India and China mostly, which are one third of the world's population. Not only in Asia, there were also in uh, some parts of Europe like Armenia, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So my first step was to say, okay, because it's a uh, problematic where you have um, a demographical imbalance and this is about, you know, numbers. Let's go to the places that makes a difference, like India and China, one third of the world's population. So I went to India first, knowing that I might go to China after that. And in India, uh, I did a lot of research. My first step, and it's always like that into my project, is to go to meet scientists specialized into their subject. Because as an artist, in a way, I'm not specialized in anything. So the fact of meeting people that are working since years and years on exactly the same subject is very important for me to base the project on and understand it before I can digest it and turn it into art. So in a way, it's a kind of exchange between scientists and artists because they feed you with the, the facts that you need, but they don't have really visuals or images from what they try to say or what they say, sorry. Uh, they don't really have images of what they say. So by turning that into an art piece, it's an exchange where I'm exchanging the facts and the research against finally um, a, a way to embody what they, what they are trying to say. I don't mean to dwell on the mundane, but how did you afford to do this? As I watched your film and I saw artisans working on your sculptures, where does the money come from for things like that? I was doing most of the um, sculptures by myself at that time. Right. So Holy Daughters, it, I, I wasn't working yet with craftsmen that arrived after. Uh, but all the money was coming from the selling of my artworks to collectors. And I was refunding all those, this money into my projects. Wow. But it was a very, you know, uh, dangerous economy because I was spending everything I was willing. Sure. And for the procreative dinner, it was by selling uh, the seats to the dinner mm -hmm. that I, mm -hmm. I could fund it. How long did you spend in India working on this project? Mm, it was about three trips of a few weeks of research. 
and then uh, doing it that was, uh, you know, all along a year or two because there were two projects there. Mm -hmm. So 2010, 2011, 2012. And so then came Terracotta Daughters? Exactly. And that is jaw-dropping. So before Terracotta Daughters, uh, there were the very important date, which is 2011. It was the, the year where they do the census, the sex ratio census in India, and it's every 10 years. The first one where they discovered there were that crazy imbalance between boys and girls was 71 by Amartya Sen, an economist and dem demographer. And when he pointed that out, you know, the government had to do something. So they started to forbid the dowry and try to find solutions. But we are 2010. I'm doing my project, The Holy Daughters in the Street of New Delhi, uh, abandoning the sculptures in the streets uh, that people would react to them. I'm hiding behind a camera like if I was a journalist and I'm asking them the questions, what it is. And I meet really like, like street philosophers who point out exactly at what I'm trying to say and, and, and even teach me things. So that was a, a very, very uh, funding project for me. And it's 2010 and I'm preparing a show in Paris for 2011. Like a kind of question mark on the results that are more than 40 years after they discovered uh, that imbalance right, and, and what right. would be uh -huh. those results. So everyone would think that they would be a bit better. Right, that there was an improvement. And in fact, it was the worst, worst. Mm -hmm. they had ever seen. Wow. That's how I, I decided not to stop here, but, but to do a second part to the project. This time in Kolkata, Calcutta, and to pass the hand to the craftsmen there, telling them, okay, this is uh, the deity that I created, but how would you do it? in your own way, like right. in, with your following your, your codes, right. your traditions. And so they told me, oh, you know, it's black. We want to do it white. Uh, this is uh, uh, nude. We want to do it with, with, with clothes on and flowers and this and that. And the hands should be in that position. We know better than you. <laughs> yes. So you I gave worked, them carte blanche. Carte blanche. I worked with uh, months with them in Calcutta. It was in a very specific uh, neighborhood of Calcutta, which is called Kumartuli, where they do sculptures in clay coming out from the Genji River, the Holy River. So the clay is taken in the middle of the river, then brought back into the neighborhood, which is not, not far from the river. And they sculpt from centuries exactly the same sculptures of the same deities. So you have Ganesh and Durga mostly. And in October, every October, they do a procession and they push back the sculptures in the Into river. the river, yeah. So I followed all the codes. You know, we had, uh, you have to do it with a family from Kolkata. I did it with one family. And we had the prayers of the family uh, who were there and walked with us. We did the procession uh, until the river. And we had a Durga in front, a Ganesh back to us. We had the policeman stopping us, but we continued. And finally, we arrived at the bank of the river and there with, you know, thousands of people around, we pushed the river back into where she was coming from. That was filmed? That was filmed. Right, because that features in your documentary. Why did you film that? You know, it's, I think it was, how couldn't I film, you know, because it was an ephemeral so project. Yes, yes. And, and when something is ephemeral, the only thing that 
is it, left yes. will be the image. And as an artist, I don't consider myself only as a sculptor, but I'm also, you know, using the image, the, the video, right. the photography right. that has always been part of my work and documentation. So now do we go to Terracotta Daughters? Mm -hmm. And that is positively ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, 108 sculptures. It's powerful, but it's it's... Holy shit, right? <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do 800, but I didn't have the money. Uh, I mean, I didn't even have the money to do 108, but I found a way. I, I decided to, you know, from the eight originals, because I needed to start from something, uh, I wanted to base it not on whatever uh, girl that I would see in a magazine. I wanted to base it on real girls that would need the project in a way or another to help them. So there were, I, I first started by meeting sociologists, you know, specialized into the project. And I was so lucky, it was kind of crazy. The China is huge. The sociologists specialized into that subject, which is gender imbalance and gender selection, were in Xi'an, the same city where the army that I wanted to, you know, um, use as a, as a symbol, as a start, the, the real terracotta soldiers are, the archaeological site is there. And also then the craftsmen that I wanted to collaborate with. So my first step was to go meet the sociologists. My second step was to try to find craftsmen that had the skills uh, that I, I could work with them on such a large-scale project. I think at the time I didn't realize the time that I would have to spend there. It's there during my first trip that I started to do the calculation and I realized it would be huge and take a large part of my life. Um, and then my third step was, in fact, to, to, to find those girls that I could collaborate with for the project. So I searched and I searched uh, and I finally found a small uh, French and Chinese NGO and... They were the right scale, you know, because I, I knew that I wanted to keep uh, a long-term relationship with them. And they introduced me to girls from the deep countryside, which is where you have the most sex selection in the countryside compared to India, where it's more in the cities and in the middle class. So I didn't want to select those girls. This is a project, you know, against election. I'm not going to select who is cu the cutest or not. Yeah. So I told them to, you know, choose who would need the project the most. And, you know, we met the girls. I, I photographed them, uh, face, profile, back, and then went back to Xi'an with those images and started to sculpt them. I kind of did hybrids again, but this time it was hybrids between the terracotta soldiers' style 2,000 years ago. <laughs> And the girls of today. So to make that, for example, I realized that, oh, the soldiers have scarves. Uh, you know, all the soldiers have, have very stylized scarves. And if you look at the schoolgirls, they all have to wear those red scarves from the Communist Party. So I made a hybrid between, you know, scarves of the soldiers and scarves of the schoolgirls. And I didn't realize at the time I was following my intuition. But I didn't realize that these kind of small details would make a big difference for the craftsmen. Because imagine when I arrived, they see that young girl, you know, French, whatever, uh, foreign, uh, who know nothing about nothing, and is coming to change a thousand uh, old history. tradition yeah, and history. history. Yeah. And not even that, but turning uh, soldiers, which everyone knows are male, right. into f girls. But I'm, but I'm struck by 
China doesn't really own up to the gender imbalance, does it? I mean, you were doing something pretty radical in highlighting this practice of gender discrimination. Yes, but at the same time, I was working with a sociologist from the university. So right. that was my, my kind of um, stamp. Street cred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why it was my first move, in a way. And to because, get them on your side, so and to speak. It's always been, like, with, with my project, I was always doing that as a kind of first step, you know, going and meeting the scientists. So it just turned out that it was um, the best way because they, in fact, when I came the first time, have heard about my project in India. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, you have to do something for China. You know? So you got permission to bury these 108 figures with the provision that excavation would happen in 2030? Oh, oh if we are, are talking about about uh, burial, no. That, uh, I did it really by myself. You didn't have the blessing of anybody. <laughs> yes, I know when you do something there, you do in a way, but uh, I didn't ask for it. Okay. You know, so if so you, you just did this, I just did this. I just did this. I mean, I didn't just do this I know, no. because yeah, yeah. it was more than nine months of work. Duh. Yeah. Uh, about five trips, a lot of disappointments, uh, a lot of stress, lots of money that I I did. Um, how do you say call that? Uh, un emprunt. I had to, you know, ask someone for money. Oh, yes. Uh, a loan. So I had to do a loan. Um and that was a long process. So to raise money. Yeah, exactly. I'm going from one 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 thing to another, and I remember that I forgot to uh, to to explain, you know, how I financed in the right. first place the the army itself. You mm-hmm. know. Yes. So to finance the Terracotta Daughters Army, the 108. In fact, I created those eight originals. And I sold them to eight different collectors that through that would finance one-eighth of the whole project and also three years of education of each of the girls. Wow. So, wow. But at the time, I didn't know that I wanted to do a world tour. Huh. <laughs> it, I showed them in Boy, Shanghai. Well, the sky's the limit for you, isn't it? <laughs> I showed them in Shanghai for the first time. And the, the reaction of the of the people was was incredible and, and I thought it's why you know my aim, my big aim was to bury them in China until twenty thirty. But I realized that before to be buried the, the girls should see the world. <laughs> and so in two weeks, literally two weeks, I had to organize a world tour because the show was coming to an end and I had no way to no places to aye, to, aye. <laughs> to storage them. So I did a loan and uh, I started the world tour. I, I did a budget. I thought that it would cost me uh, one third of what it really costed me in the end. But, you know, if not, you would never start. And uh, I had no place to go. But I said, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm Parisian from even if I live since years in New York. Uh, let's start by, by going to explain to my family and friends why I have been away for so long in China. <laughs> so I, I brought all the army there to Paris, and I was very lucky to find in a few months an institution, Le 104, um, a great, amazing place in Paris, which is in a not fancy neighborhood, but a huge, beautiful architecture. And they have an incredible um, programmation where they really mix theater, music, art, 
uh, and also people from the neighborhoods and um, and the projects around are coming and, and dancing along uh, people from the fancy uh, theater school not far, you know. So it's a really, really a special real place. Uh-huh. And my army found uh, you know, a home there for a few months. Uh, and, and you never see that, like an institution that would open its door into, you know, f- five months ahead. It's impossible. Normally it takes a year, two years, three years. So I was super lucky on that way. And after that, I brought it to Zurich, which was the first city where the real soldiers were shown in Europe for the first time. After that, I brought it to New York, the place, you know, my adoptive place uh, to also show my friends there what I was doing in China for so long. And I worked with the China Institute, the French Alliance, and we found a place which was being built um, along the site of the of the towers. Of the Twin Towers down the in Lower Manhattan? Man- Lower Manhattan. Uh-huh. And it was not far from Chinatown. Okay. That, that place made a lot of sense because it looked like an archaeological site because it was being built. And so we showed the army there. That was incredible, really an incredible experience, especially because I invited the craftsman, uh, Wen Xianfeng, to come. He stayed at my home, which is in Chinatown. So, you know, he was, even if he doesn't speak a word of English or French, and I, I don't speak Chinese, uh, we had worked for years uh, along one the other. So it was incredible to be together and again to be able to show him my life uh, there in in US and also to show him the girls that he haven't seen for, for, for a while. And having him walking through the army was really emotional. very emotional. Yeah. So he, I saw him, you know, a tough man from from deep suburbs of of, of China, suddenly so impacted. crying, mm-hmm. impacted, and telling me it's like my children went out to play, and I'm I'm finally meeting them again. You know, like wow. it's a, so he missed them. He yeah. he, he had yeah. kind of personif- personified them. And where at first he really didn't believe in the project, suddenly I could realize that it was his project now. Ay, ay, ay. Uh. <laughs> so <laughs> after after New York, we went to Mexico, Mexico City, uh, because I, I I didn't know for the last stop where where I would go, and. I went to DFA for the first time for a Picasso exhibition that a friend of mine, curator, was doing at the Palazzo of Bellas Artes. And being there at that opening, uh, that friend curator, uh, we wanted to do the Terracotta Daughters project together, but we didn't know where, when. And we have an architect that shows us on his phone a museum in DFA, which is called the Anahuacali. It's the museum of Diego Rivera. And I see that space and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is there. This is where it has to happen. Like the architecture was calling me. So the next day I went there and again, there were like that incredible fake archaeological site built by Diego Rivera to keep his pre-Hispanic artworks. And right in front of kind of, of, of space, like kind of pool where it was exactly the size of the army. The color of the volcanic stone were exactly the color of the army. It was like it was calling it. I met with the director. She was like, no way. (laughs) No way. Like, you want me to have your army in in three months? It's impossible. And for one month, no. 
And finally, I don't know how, you know, serendipity again, she changed her mind. Well, you can move mountains. I mean, people don't turn you down. At least that's the uh, sense I'm getting here. It happens, of course, and, and I think that's how you learn things also, you know, but it worked. It, it was meant to be. Yep. And uh, the army went there. And that was really incredible to bring my fake archaeological site in a way to Diego's fake archaeological yeah, site. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. And I had only a year. You know, it was the end of the trip. I had only a year. I was afraid China wouldn't accept uh, my my army again. Yeah, so, welcome you back. Exactly. Yeah. So I had to respect uh, the deadlines mm-hmm. like by, by, by a day. Or, and so it left again for China. And there I worked for nine months to be able to find the, arche- the archaeological site where I could uh, bury, bury my army yeah, until yeah. 2030. My big aim that I, you know, I had taken a risk bringing it out of China and spending all that time traveling it. What's the significance of the year? 2030 is the, um, the year where the Chinese sociologists I've been working with say there will be the highest peak of imbalance between men and women. So the most uh, men will search for for brides and not find any. Ah, it's scarce. Yeah. Exactly. But at the same time, it carries a bit of hope because it might also be the year where the imbalance between boys and girls, between zero and five, might come back to normal. So I really hope that's the case. So now you go to the doctor. (laughs) It's 2016. Right after the burial. Of course. Why not? And much to your, obviously, dismay and shock, you get a diagnosis that must have so rocked your world. Totally. I think that word cancer, especially when you're 31, you have no idea what it means but fear. But the strange thing is that my first reaction was really, it was for my family. It was how are they going to handle that? Because strangely, I think when, you, when you're when you ill, you enter right away in a survival mode and you know that you have no choice. But the people around you, come on, this is something else. So you get this diagnosis and then you have to start on a very different journey. Exactly. I learned so much just from those few days uh, where I learned about it. I learned so much because I'm, I realized that right away I took that as a production and my second reaction was what to do, what would be logical. And, and it was like, I need different diagnosis to know what to do. So I called three different doctors. Oh, you mean to get a different opinions? Opinions of what I should do. Oh, what you, oh, what, because, okay, you know, the treatment. Okay. Yeah, the, uh-huh. the number doesn't, yep. doesn't, you know, they, they, I had the biopsy, so, so I knew what I had, but what should I do with it? So I went to a first doctor. And I realized that I liked the surgeon. I didn't like the oncologist. I didn't trust their diagnosis, which I didn't know at the time, you know. But I had to go to a second one, which was a public hospital, very well known. And um, I really didn't feel the surgeon. Uh, But the diagnosis of the oncologist was different from the first one. So I went to a third one. And there... They had the same diagnosis than the oncologist of the public hospital, and the surgeon was really good. So there's the match. That was the match. Mm -hmm. And you had an option, did you not? Not necessarily to have a mastectomy? I had that choice, exactly. But as a young woman and also seeing the size of of my uh, tumor, 
uh, the size of my breasts. Uh, I went from the, for the mastectomy. So why did you make this a cinematic journey? I had no idea at the time I would, to be true. I was working on uh, I was working on on the project Terracotta Daughters as the, as a movie also. That was what I had in my mind. I had all these crazy images from 2011 when I started the project, and I thought, you know, it's time for me after the burial to um, to make a movie, a long feature about that. And I was working with a writer, a dear friend of mine. But when I told him about the illness, he said, "Come on, Prud, are you joking? Like." You have to focus on your health right now. That's all that matters. Terracotta daughters, they're going to be expecting wait for you. In 2030, they yeah. can wait for you. Yeah. And he was so right because it makes far more sense to wait until 2030 to, to do the, the long feature. And at the same time, uh, as I was in New York, I had a, a friend, Darren Aronofsky, director, who had really supported me on, you know, the Terracotta Daughters um, images. He was really pushed me to, to, to make a feature about it. But he told me, you know, the same thing, like, you, you're, you're ill. And as an artist, your luck is to be able to transform whatever happens to you into art. So just take a camera and you'll see. That was another very good advice. So, yeah, I started to film and really I realized it was helping me, helping me because I could be proactive of the illness by doing so. Like the fact of telling action to myself each time I was in the corridor of the, the hospital or, or in the surgical room, I felt that I was proactive of what was going on. So documenting your journey must have been on two levels empowering for you and the goal of empowering other women. That, I didn't know. You didn't yet. realize that at the time. I didn't know yet that, um, that I would do a feature about it. So I was just documenting. But I started along the process to see that there were so many strange links between my artworks, the past artworks and projects I had done and what I was going through. Not that, the least of which was the embryos and, you know, yes. uh, saving your embryos. For so them. many things. Yeah. Very yeah. crazy. Until, yeah. for example, the, the surgeon during reconstruction is uh, proposing me a new technique, which is to graft some uh, cow fetus skin on my breasts and, and hybridize me. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, so it, it was so many, so many, so many serendipitous Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so, a great shot in the film of your doctor drawing on your butt, you know, about using those tissues, like mm. you said, for your breast. And you turned to him and you said, well, now you're the sculptor. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this was how long in the making, this film? Because it was so organic, I would say maybe a year in the process and, and then another year of editing and, you know, working on, um, on the post-production of it. Was there at any point in this process that you thought, what the hell am I doing with, with this? Oh, many times, especially because I, in fact, it, the hardest thing for me was to turn the camera towards me, where until then I, I, I was putting a lot of distance. I was putting all my past projects, Holy Daughters, Terracotta Daughters, uh, The Procreative Dinner. I was working on them like an anthropologist, so with a kind of distance. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, mm -hmm. I was a subject. So personal. So personal, and I, I didn't like that. Mm. But that's where um, entered into the game the fact that I realized not only 
filming was helping me, but also there was that wish that if I was doing something about it, it could help other women mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or people going through the same thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So that became a kind of goal, yes. Now, until I, I would finish the movie, I couldn't know if that would work or not. So in the course of the diagnosis in 2016 and what sort of transpired in your professional and personal life, you come up to 2018, which is another seminal moment because something becomes bigger than you in terms of this work, Amazon, that you could not help but create that. Exactly. It's, it's very strange. It's like exactly as you said right before, the fact that this, sculpt, this um, surgeon was becoming the sculptor and I was suddenly the sculptor during all the reconstruction. And at some point... Uh, still in that same idea of being proactive and creative of my own illness, I needed to embody that proaction into sculpture and, and come back to being a sculptor again and not anymore the sculpture. So the Amazon hmm. was that for me. Wow. The Amazon was that. And I knew about, you know, mythology had always been part of my work in a way or another, in the storytelling, in the symbols. Um, but I knew about that tribe of, of women warriors who were cutting their breasts to be better with their bow, bow and yeah. arrow. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I decided to make my own version of it. Also because I, I met at the Met, the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum, I met one sculpture which uh, had a huge impact on me. She was life-size in marble and... It's the only Amazon you can find at the Met. And she had such a peaceful look. She has her arm above her head, watching at her wand, which is at the same place than mine, uh, on the same side. And But she's so calm and peaceful that, you know, really she was appealing me. Mm -hmm. That's how you say appealing me. She was calling me. Yes, yeah. She spoke to you. She spoke to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I decided to do my own version. And I found a place, incredible place, magical place to work at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Huge, beautiful lights, beautiful energy. And I worked there for a few months to build that sculpture in concrete. Concrete recovered with incense sticks also yes. because I was, you know, starting to discover uh, the power of transferring an emotion into an object, how that wasn't new at all, that was uh, that could be a description of art or that could be, you know, what what, what you would tell of, of the milagros, the miracles uh, or the ex votos that you find in every uh, culture's at every period of, of human history, you have those objects. When you're ill of a hand, of an organ, at some point you go to a craftsman, you ask him to make a mini version. It can be in silver, 2D, or it can be in wood, 3D. Uh, if it's Brazil, if it's Italy, it's going to be different. But you find that. And you find that also like thousands of years ago. I worked with archaeologists specialized into that. And it's crazy how it's been, you know, part of the human history and, and a need, in fact, in every cultures and religions. And then you offer it to whatever temple, um, sacred place you believe in. So the Amazon was that for me in a way, you know, a kind of exodo, a kind of catharsis. And 
I got inspired to make her in concrete and in sand sticks by the one in Japan called the Mizuko Kuyo that you do for women when they had a miscarriage or an abortion. They do a mini version of, of a baby in uh, concrete and they place in sands in front. So, you know, that's how I, I decided to Whoa. make her in concrete. Wow. It's such an incredible contrast in the film where you literally are taking your clothes off. What's that like to have seen the finished product in this film? How do you feel about it? I treat- and let me just interrupt and say that so it was Darren Aronofsky, uh, you know, a very well-respected filmmaker who pushed you to do this. And also one of the executive producers is Angelina Jolie, also a breast cancer survivor. What I truly believe in is the, the process the process and the, you know how along the way you do that with a team. So the movie, uh, the magic of it and the catharsis of it was the, the process of working with an incredible team, the writer and producer, Alastair Sidons. Um, without him, I wouldn't have done that movie. It's not a voiceover that you hear in the movie. It's a conversation with my dear, dear friend that I trust, him, Alastair, um, the, the editor, so important, an editor you know, for a movie can do so many movies in, in one. Yeah, that's a very powerful um, position, yes. The executive producers who were full of great advices, Soul Guy especially, who thanks to him I was able to finance that movie with uh, telling me that if I wasn't doing anything with it in the end, it would be okay, you know, giving me that freedom that you don't have in the mm-hmm. industry. So, yeah, all of that together was really this idea of the power of the process and the team. Same thing with the the Amazon. The catharsis was not only the Finnish uh, sculpture. It was also the process of traveling her on the river because I I organized a a kind of performance where it it was like a symbol of the cancer journey. So it had to be transported from the Brooklyn Navy Yard to Lower Manhattan. On a barge. That's a great shot in the movie. I had I had that in mind for for years and it was a dream to be able, you know, to do it with that sculpture especially. Yeah. Traveling on on the Hudson River, a big sculpture on on a barge, go until the the Statue of Liberty, (laughs) saying hi to the statue, then then heading to another place. And so we finished uh, in one place where I had invited all my my family and friends uh, on a boat to join us. So it was like the friends' ship, <laughs> and everyone you know came on the barge, and and we performed a, a moment, uh, a cathartic celebration, where I broke the breast of the sculpture, like a, a gesture to symbolize the fact that from the sculpture I was during reconstruction, I, I was the sculptor again. And so this, this action, that gesture, was for me a catharsis, and also I asked all the the friends and family to who had supported me along right, the right. along the treatments to mark the end of the treatments, to light all the incense. Incense candles. Uh-huh. Exactly. Wow. So, the, you know, all the smoke. There, there is something very healing with that smoke and the idea of the incense. I'm not surprised it's everywhere in Asia. I'm very curious what's in your future. I hope to make, uh, because I feel the movie, you know, comes from the guts and, right. and is very um, uh, kind of um, not contemplative but 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 a movie like an art piece I'd like to make also a book that would be more practical with everything I wish I had uh, as information uh, when I learned I back was in the Ill. day mm-hmm. yeah so that's one of the projects and I have another project in North Dakota and one in Africa uh, it will come <laughs> everything comes at the right time that's a no-brainer prune Nuri what can I say What a fascinating conversation. You are one hell of a broad. 
so my pleasure to have met and gotten to know you face-to-face and cinematically. It's a very powerful film, Serendipity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.